Welcome to the Chaka Life Podcast. My guest today is Scott Isinger, an Emmy Award-winning producer of groundbreaking reality shows like The Howard Stern Show, The Amazing Race, and Big Brother. Now he's set his sights on independent film, forming his own production company, Unguarded Content, and developing stories into film, scripted, and reality television based on real people and real stories. So welcome, Scott. Thank you for joining us today and talking about working in Hollywood and being a producer. Thank you for having me. Sure. And so can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on right now? Right now, I am trying to make independent movies uh, and self-funded my own production company with a partner and hustling it out every single day. Wow. And did you start out making independent films or tell me about how you got started in the business? Well, I went to film school and graduated from Ithaca College back in 1988 and knew that Hollywood was sort of the promised land, meaning if you wanted to work in the business, Hollywood is essentially where all the decision makers live. And so with bright eyes and a buddy, my college roommate, got in a car, drove out to Los Angeles, not knowing a soul, <laughs> uh, with a resume in hand, but, but very, but very, very single-mindedly focused on getting a job in film. Did you I always, did yeah. you always know you wanted to go to film school? How did even film school start for you? I suppose I was fortunate uh, in terms of career goals since I was eight years old. I was the kid who was making Super 8 movies in the basement and, you know, showing, you know, worked on the AV squad and, and that kind of thing. Okay. So, I, so I, I was always involved in some form of media, you know, be it at my high school, local cable television show, but my passion was to work in films, even despite having some some fortunate experience uh, working for a commercial TV director as an internship during college. So a long way of saying I knew what I wanted to do since I was a little kid. When you drove out to L.A., I mean, that's just like the quintessential story. Did you have a list of people to get in contact with, or what did you think you would I, happen? I, <clears throat> I, I no, I had nobody. I had, uh, <laughs> there was no one. What what I what all I had was um, a resume, which consisted of my internships that I did during college. Was willing to do anything, which at the time, you know, the two go to places were to buy every morning at Seven Eleven. The Daily Variety and the Hollywood Reporter, which had a classified ad section, right? <laughs> like no joke. Like they don't like 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 you don't read them that way anymore. I mean, right. publishing has changed. And I would look at the classified, and uh, I guess my story is sort of typical in in that the only job that I could get, and the only job that I ended up getting was an was an assistant. This is back in 1998. Uh, was an assistant at a Talent, a very small talent agency, uh, making one hundred and twenty dollars a week. That was my that was my first job in Hollywood, and probably working eighty hours or something ridiculous. It, yeah, it was it was it was long, and and I, you know, I 
I knew after a while that my heart wasn't into wanting to be an agent. I, I felt like, and not in an arrogant way, that my dream was actually to be a client of an agency one day. So I left after a year and went, went back to looking at you know the trades in the newspapers. And this is a pretty classic story. I ended up getting a job at a video store. <laughs> which, 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 at least to me at the time, had a benefit, which was, and now they don't, they don't even really have video stores anymore. No. But um, this, this one was actually a pretty cool one in Westwood, which, which had a, a really good selection of of films and genres, and a lot of celebrities would come in, directors, because uh, it was it was a it was basically a mom and pop video store, and the, one of the benefits of working there was that you were able to take home movies for free. So, so that was, that was a cool benefit. Okay. Um, this is starting you know, to sound a little bit like Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> it, uh, it, it's pretty much the same. It's pretty much the same. And, um, and would, would, um, would love to have his career of course, but yeah, he, I mean, he did the same thing. He worked in a video store. So while I was working at the video store, I knew that that wasn't going to be my dream come true and continue to look in the, into the trades and, saw an ad for a job which was titled tape library assistant three to midnight shift <laughs> at a cable network called movie time and i looked at and i said well i have the perfect credentials i'm working in a video store I- i'm totally totally trained up to be a a entry level <laughs> videotape librarian at at a cable network and and that was in June of 1990. Um, I got the job. It didn't pay enough, so I actually worked both jobs. I, I worked five days a week, three to midnight at Movie Time, which was essentially a startup cable network that promoted entertainment news. You know, they aired um, you know celebrity interviews, behind the scenes material, that sort of thing. And, and I serviced the producers at the network who had to cut pieces. Um, but I, I didn't make enough money, so I still worked um, at the video store on the weekend. So in terms of, you know, the stories of, of how, you know, whatever it takes, I mean, I, you know, I did whatever it took. And for me, that was, you know, working both jobs. Then something fortunate happened, which I was unaware of, and and back in June of 1990, when I took the job, what I did not know is behind the scenes, HBO and Time Warner had uh, plans to buy the, the fledgling network and turn it into e-entertainment television. So in June of, I think it was June of 1990, I was there for the launch of a cable network, which was very exciting and very rare. Oh, yeah. um, doesn't happen that often. And from there, I decided, well, I wasn't going to um, want to be a tape librarian for my career. But the benefit of working at a cable network and, and working in the tape library is that I interfaced with producers in every single department. So that would mean I interface with producers from the news department. I interface with producers from live events. I produce with, I interface with producers from, uh, you know, more long form programming, uh, the on air promotion department. 
since I was working the three to midnight shift, there were some slow times. So there were some kind producers who would allow me to sit in their edit bays and, and, and explore what they did. And so I had sort of a bird's eye view of what the different types of producers are within a cable network um, and the different departments. And by the way, there was also the marketing department. There was, you know, many departments that make up a cable network. I decided that having gone to film school, that my, my choice, if I had it, was to, to work for the on-air promotions department. And that's the department that creates the 30-second promos, little commercials, right, mm-hmm. that promote the programming. And the, and the reason why I, I made that decision is that I saw that the on-air promotion producers got to work with the, the best editors because there was also graphics involved. They got to sometimes actually direct shoots. They got to direct voiceover talent. And the best part of all is every time they produced a spot, a 30-second spot, it, you could aggregate a reel, like a reel, uh, a, a reel examples of your work. Right. So, uh, so I figured that that was the department that I wanted to, to end up in. And I, I would bet, I mean, I begged and begged and begged and pled with all the producers in the, in the on-air promotion department and, and, and the head of the department that the second and, uh, production assistant job opens up an honor promotion. Can I please, please, please have the job? There was a lot of begging involved. <laughs> and, um, and, it, and, and that happened for me. Uh, and so once I, once I became a producer at a, at a cable network, which was, you know, if you look at e-entertainment television today, it's a, it's a huge company. Uh, I'm guessing, you know, maybe with 2,000 employees and, and owned by Comcast and part of a big superstructure. Back then, e, you know, in 1990, when it launched, it was 200 basically, you know, kids in their 20s, you know, and so there was a lot of opportunity. So as a production assistant, I, I was able to actually produce and go in the bay and finish a spot and, and walk into the head of programming's office with my boss and 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 show them the spot and and see it air you know fifty times a day so it 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 worked for me. Um, well, it's almost like yeah. you're getting a, a crash course in real life filmmaking because those thirty second spots actually have to tell a story and they have all the different elements that you might have in something more long form and you have to kind of make it interesting. Yeah, it's a good point and and what it taught me it's actually. Not to, not to say, I mean, it's all hard, but to tell a story in 30 seconds is, is sometimes more challenging than telling a story in 22 minutes, right? And, and it forced me to use my writing skills because I was responsible for writing it. I was responsible for working with the graphics department. I was responsible to um, sit with an editor. And back then, Avids didn't exist, they uh, offline or nonlinear editing did not exist. So you had to, you had one edit session, you had to have screened your tapes. And back then for any of you who are in their forties, you know, three quarter inch or one or one inch reels. And you had to have your paper cut and you had one session to essentially get it right. So it, it was a good learning experience for me. And it, I also liked the sort of art, art tour 
uh, element of it because it was really just it was my single vision. The script got approved, and I would sit with an editor. I lived in I mean I basically lived in an edit bay as as I progressed up the food chain and on air promotion. So started as a PA, got promoted to an associate producer, got promoted to a producer, got promoted to a senior producer, and then I think I got promoted to a supervising producer. Um, and and that's how I sort of earned my producer stripes with within that department. Yeah, and it, it also kind of tells the story that no matter where you start, it's good to be in a s- smaller arena so that you can do all kinds of things and really, and that you're allowed to do other things rather than if you work for something gigantic, you're really going to be pigeonholed. So sometimes these really small arenas are good to get all that experience. Yeah, I agree. And and the benefit was I also got a lot of attention, which meant to say that when the spot was done, it had to get approved by either the head of programming. Sometimes I got marched into the, the president's office at the time, a gentleman named Lee Masters, and you were patted on the back if they liked it, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and if they and if they had notes and didn't like it, you you were sent back to the bay. But it was it was certainly good in terms of 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 having to use a lot of different skill sets, but also getting exposure. And then, like I said, building a reel. So every time I finish a spot. You know, I added it to my reel, and it became something that I knew that could be portable if, in the event, I wanted to to get another job. But that's not what happened. Actually, then there's a little bit of twist in my story, in terms of the next phase of my career. Well, yeah, that's what because most people, once you get into that studio job or uh, you know you work for Discovery or any of these big networks, it's really difficult to make the leap out into anything independent after that. How how did you? move on from there well what happened was and and this is this is more of a a a personal decision but i I was young and i was at the time uh dating someone in new york and i made the decision at probably oh my god 23 24 years old that i was going to quit my job at e and for love move to new york (laughs) to be with this woman and Everyone at E told me I was out of my mind. Uh, you're too young, and you're on such a great trajectory. And and I, I'm pretty strong-willed, and 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 I live my you know I live my own life. And I told them that I appreciate it, and you guys have been great, but this is my decision, right. and I'm going to New York. And there were some conversations behind the scenes that I was unaware of, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, e Entertainment Television actually created a job for me in New York. I was the first producer for the company in New York, uh, full time, as they were growing and and having to you know expand their breadth of entertainment coverage. So literally, I didn't leave the company, but I moved to New York and had a desk in the ad sales department. And whenever they needed a celebrity interview or someone to cover a press junket, they just called me. And so that was, that was my existence at E for a bit. And then something else happened, <laughs> which, which, um, which, sort of, which, which sort of formed, I think, the balance of my career. And it's the following. Uh, e had um, entered into a television deal with Howard Stern, um, the famed radio show host, who's also now 
for, for the younger, for your younger listeners, um, a host on America's Got Talent. Having grown up in New York, I was a huge Howard fan. And they had talked about doing a, a stripped nightly television series where they would put robotic cameras in his radio studio. And since Howard, for some people, was considered or still is considered one of the best celebrity interviewers, that we would um, record the radio show. So since I was in New York, it made sense to pair me with Howard. So in, in June of 1994, I, with a very, very, very small crew and not a lot of resources, and no one had really done this before, no one had really taken a radio show and figured out how to make it telegenic. By nature and design, radio shows are static. So I, I was young. I mean, I was 25 at the time and, you know, working with Howard, you know, who's, you know, who's amazing and smart and brilliant, but also it's Howard Stern and Howard, you know, was, was also on terrestrial radio at the time and, you know, reaching 18 million households and he was a big deal, but he also came with a, a, an on-air staff. So it wasn't just sort of one talent to deal with. It was, it was a handful of talent. And so I set off to figure out how to turn his radio show into a TV show. And that was for E? That was for E. It was, it was just called Howard Stern. And um, it aired every night, I think at 11 o'clock. And what I did, which, was, <laughs> which, which caused a lot of fury back at the home office in Los Angeles, is since I was a fan, and I, I'm not going to take full credit, but I, I think you know at the time Howard and I, you know, we're sort of both on the same page because I understood the show. As a fan, I decided that the celebrity interviews were fine and I understood their value to E, but I felt that the late night audience also wanted to see some of the, the wilder things that they heard on the air but didn't believe, like, is that really happening? Okay. And also, and this is where I think I was lucky to be part of one of the first sort of workplace docu-soaps, is that there was always a lot of conflict amongst the staff and it was sort of part of the fabric and DNA of Howard's show. So I started programming episodes that were wild and racy, you know, for anyone who's seen the show, um, there was a lot of blurs. Um, and and then I also started programming fights, fights between the staff and put cameras behind the scenes and the e-corporate folks back home totally freaked out and said that's not why we did a deal with Howard. But the proof was in the ratings. Yeah, it and, was a hit. And that's what people it wanted was a hit. to see. So, 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 to get, so just to give some, some context, at the time, E! was a, a point two network in terms of ratings. Um, and that's fine. They were a young network. We were doing sometimes a one or a one point over a one, one rating, which is huge. So, so once the ratings came in, they left me alone. <laughs> and, um, and I, and I ended up staying with Howard for actually a decade, almost, almost 10 years. Along the way, would you say that there were a few people that helped you particularly, or would you say it was just kind of happenstance, you know, working really hard? What would you say <clears throat> propelled you? Well, to name names, 
I mean, I certainly I had a very supportive boss and and a gentleman named John Ryber, who was an executive at E. I mean, I had the support of Fran Shea at the time, who was the head of programming. I had the support of Lee Masters. But I also but my my biggest supporter and my leverage was Howard. So so once Howard trusted me, he kind of left me alone. And I was, you know, I had a staff in, in, in New York and I kind of you know, ran my own ship. And, um, so I'd say, I mean, Howard, because he was a big, important talent to the network and it was the highest rated show at the time and, and having a relationship with him, um, and, and, and learning a lot from each other. Um, you know, he's a broadcaster. So I think that, you know, he, he had, a, he had a lot to do with my ability to function and, execute i think what he'd be proud of and what was my vision and then and then i also had an amazing tireless crew you know and had to integrate with the radio staff as well who were very supportive so that's that's kind of an important point too i mean it helps if you can get in with a talent and they support you because then you can have free reign especially if they're as big as someone like howard stern uh yeah it really gives you a lot of leverage that yeah, it's a good and I you know what and I you know I was I was young and full of um, I don't know if you can curse on your radio show but I was you know full of piss, piss and vinegar and and I was I was smart like I mean I I le- I did leverage I would say I mean I did leverage the power of Howard and and you know if there was something that I knew he wanted um, or something that he would want you know, I wasn't afraid to say, well, you, okay, well, you can tell Howard no if you'd like, <laughs> because, <laughs> because, because he's a big force. And, and, and not that, um, not that I had any evil intentions, but I, I, you know, I cared about the show because a lot of the things that he did and a lot of things that we aired were controversial. There was plenty of conversations with standards and practices and, and, and there was a lot of battles to be fought. And oh, yeah. there were times when, when, you know, we had to do shoots that were, outside the scope of just the cameras in the studio. I mean, we, we did two giant uh, event shows each year that were 10 camera shoots. We would do hidden camera shows. We would build game show sets. We had bands, you know, sometimes it required asking E for more money, you know? And so I, I mirror your point is that if you do have someone who's sort of higher than you in the food chain that, you know, is, is your partner in this, they can, you know, you can sort of use that. (laughs) I did. I did. I mean, I I did. I think it's all about timing too, to sort of know when you have that power and use it wisely and recognize it because you can miss a lot of opportunities if you you just sit back and wait as well. So you have to really, you have to be proactive about everything and looking out for those. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you want to pick your spots. I mean, if you, if you overuse it, then, then you just be, you become a bully. But, but I think, you know, as a young producer, and again, I was, you know, in my mid-20s as the executive producer showrunner for the highest rated show on E, you know, there, there was, a, you know, I felt a lot of weight on my shoulders. And so, um, you know, whatever I could do to get the job done, you know, I did. And, and also to please Howard. I mean, he, he was, he had high expectations. And also you get, you become part of the radio show uh, story. I mean, there was, I mean, I would get pulled on the air often. Sometimes usually it's get yelled at. Sometimes you hope it's not to get yelled at. Um, uh, but, um, it was, it was, 
I really was there for the for anyone who's a fan. I mean, I was really there for the probably the best ten years in, in terms of just significant things that happened in the show. Yeah, I remember but, that um, time. It that was a new a new way to do things. That was a, a bit of a groundbreaker there. That show. So. Yeah, and 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 then shows followed, and you could see you know there was shows that that started to follow that that paradigm. Most of them being actually more news oriented or sports talk shows, but you can see a lot of shows on the air now that have sets in their radio studios, and and I think fo- sort of followed what we did. So so it was a trailblazing experience that you know I'm, I'm grateful that I had, you know, and and to everyone at E and to Howard and my staff. Um, however, after 10 years, and this was, the, you couldn't, you weren't allowed to complain about much working for Howard, but there was one thing you could, could complain about, and that was the hours. So, so Howard would go on the air live every morning at 6 a.m., which meant most of us had to get up before, you know, around 5 a.m. and, and be at work ready to, to go at 6 a.m. in the morning. And the, although the radio show ended at, at noon, I still had to produce a radio show. So at the time, in the beginning, I didn't have a big staff. I would, I would leave the radio show. I would run with the, the tapes, and we, we switched a line cut, which was sort of the director's vision of the show. And then we had two ISOs, which would be two isolated cameras. And I would run to national video in New York, and I would have a deadline. I'd have to make the, vid- I'd have to make the satellite feed at like 7 o'clock. And it was it was. You know, it was very challenging at the time, and we, you know, sometimes it was like you know the movie broadcast news where you're just you're running down the hallway trying to get the tape in. Yeah. But um, over time, Howard was instrumental in realizing that he had to kind of serve two masters, and one was that he would have to do a radio show, and sometimes doing a radio show was just him talking or talking to you know talking about topics which was not telegenic, and then he realized that he had to serve the the TV side and, and give us content that was visual. So, so some days we would, we would, we called it the bank. We, we would bank more material than we needed just to fill out five nights a week. So we had a surplus of material, which then alleviated me having to have a nervous breakdown every right. day by trying to make a delivery. So, so, so we would bank shows, which, which took the pressure off. And then the, the beauty of it was if something amazing happened that day in the studio that the audience was dying to see, we still had the ability then to turn a show around and air it that night if we needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of had the best of both worlds. Boy, that sounds like a grueling sc- schedule to do for 10 years. Yeah, it was, it was rough. And, 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 you know, after 10 years for me, you know, I felt like the notion of being back in California was sort of in Hollywood was sort of beckoning again. Mm-hmm. But primarily what happened was that around 2001, early 2002, I started to see that reality television was becoming a primetime business, which is to say that the networks were giving up primetime slots to shows like Survivor One, Amazing Race One, uh, Big Brother One, Bachelor One, American Idol, season one. Right. My gut told me, and it was hard, you know, to leave Howard. I mean, you know, he was very loyal to me, and and I certainly was loyal to him. I felt like I had done my job, and 
and set up the system. And, and there were those below me that I thought it was time for them to step up, you know, sort of pass the, pass the baton. And I said to my agent at the time, I want to, I want to get into that, <laughs> that meaning I'm pointing as I talk to you, right. that meaning primetime, primetime television. Right. And uh, I'm sorry, primetime reality television. And so that was, that was my plan. I knew Howard wouldn't be thrilled with me leaving, but I was at the point where I guess, honestly, I just, I wanted to sort of make my own way and, and, and I saw an opportunity in a window and I knew that that window would close in terms of, um, again, first responders, you know, to, to, to a new business model. Right. So I was in California, um, cause he was based in California. I would make trips from time to time and my, my agent, I was supposed to, I was literally supposed to fly back to New York the next day. My agent said, you need to go and take a meeting with a gentleman named Gen Maynard, who was the head of alternative at CBS. Gen, Gen was the one who um, discovered Survivor, d- discovered Amazing Race, launched Big Brother, super, super, super smart guy. Said, you're going to go meet with Gen, that the Amazing Race is looking to do a restructuring for their second cycle, and they're looking to bring in some, I guess, some new meat, <laughs> fresh blood. Uh, and they were looking for, for someone to come in at a co-executive producer level, one person to take over front-end, logi- not take, one person to oversee front-end logistics, and one person to take over story and post-production. And after meeting with, with CBS and then and then being promptly sent over to meet with Bertram Van Munster, who created The Amazing Race with his wife, Elise, um, and was the executive producer. I, I was quickly dispatched after meeting with Gen at CBS to meet with Bertram. Now, the funny, my funny Bertram story, and it may not be relevant to people, <laughs> but if you know Bertram, this one will count. Right. I, was, I was a huge fan of cops. Now, many people may or may not know this, but Bertram was the original cameraman for cops and, and Bertram had, had, had sort of been the guy in the cop car who developed that technique of shooting. And I, like, to me, there weren't many sort of reality rock stars in in reality TV, (laughs) but I was, I was enthralled to meet with Bertram. And, um, so, so, (laughs) So uh, there was a, there was definitely a lot of sort of um, uh, uh, acknowledgement of Bertram. Well, that um, was groundbreaking. And- Cops was groundbreaking. I worked at Fox yeah. Studios when that was out, and I mean, people had never seen anything like it. It just it was amazing. So yeah, and that was. I mean, that was him. I mean, he. I mean, and and a, and a lot of you know. So so I, so I'm sitting there meeting with somebody who was in in an odd way, sort of an idol of mine because he had worked in that show. And I mean, I think he had worked his way up through the ranks and, and, and obviously had left it, but, um, I, I, I definitely kissed the ring, but, but not in a, but, 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 but totally from a genuine place, um, which, which, which I think worked. And, um, and then, you know, and then, and then I was given another phone call. This is all happening within the same day. Um, I was called back by my agency who said that, uh, CBS and Bertram would like you to stay in Los Angeles for a month and see if, you, you know, you could sort of help them in the edit bay. And I'm like, well, I have a job, you know, I, I'm, I'm responsible for running Howard's show. And 
you know, my agent at the time, you know, his response was, you know, this is about your future. So I don't specifically remember how I convinced my boss at E um, or Howard to that I was going to stay in Los Angeles, <laughs> but I but but I do recall that I was I, I was pretty transparent about my desire to, to move to Los Angeles. So I don't think it was a huge surprise. And so I, I, I literally like moved into the Oakwood apartments in Marina del Rey and lived in an edit bay for a month, I think, working. My assignment was to cut episode 12, season one of The Amazing Race. That was my test. Uh-huh. And based upon the quality of the first cut, meaning how many notes uh, – I was going to get from CBS and Gen would determine if I would get the job. And, um, I got the job. So it was bittersweet leaving Howard, but I, you know, ended up on a, you know, big production, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer's, you know, name attached and, and I was in it. I was in the primetime reality game. And, and so I, and I, I, I thank him all the time. And I, and I do, you know, tell, tell Gen Maynard that, that if I think of one person who like really gave me my big break and took a chance on a guy who like just, you know, had worked on a show that, that, you know, wasn't necessary. Well, there were no really other shows to point to like race, but he definitely took a, a chance on me. And, um, and, and he was definitely somebody who I, I'm forever grateful in, in giving me a big break. Well, it is interesting, just your story, because it does happen like that. Things can just kind of almost come out of the blue, and suddenly you're you're taking a major, you know, 90-degree turn on your career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll accelerate the story a little bit. So I, I, um, I, they hired someone else to, to be responsible for, for the other half of the show, you know, all working in conjunction with Bertram. And I, you know, worked a year straight. I we did Amazing Race 2 and, and, and got through 13 episodes and worked on Amazing Race 3. And I pretty much worked a year straight, probably without a day off. Um, th- there were times where I was actually sent home. Like Bertram would send me home. Like yeah. you, you look... Yeah, you it's, look green, <laughs> and you look like you're going to die, right. so we're going to send you home. <laughs> well, I wonder if it's still uh, true. I know that, I mean, The Amazing Race is the hardest reality show to do. It's, yes, I, I don't. Down. I don't think anything's beat it. It's still, it's it's no. just 24-7, however long you work on it, and intense. And, and the difference for me was that... Um, if you worked on the production side and logistical side, you had a little bit of a breather between seasons. I didn't because not only was I working on the show that was being shot, I was then having to edit the episodes, which then led into the next season. So I didn't really catch a break. Right. So after setting up the system, which was which is still the same system that they have today in terms of the, the editing scenario and sort of getting it right, I had made the decision that I, I felt like mission accomplished. Um, I, I did my job. And um, although there's many, many fine people who are still on that show, you know, I, I, I chose to leave and it was all amicable and, and all, you know, with all good wishes, um, ended up 
getting hired by Mike Fleiss, who had created The Bachelor, who had sold the show to ABC called Are You Hot? The Search for America's Sexiest People. And Mike was under uh, an overall deal at the time with uh, Telepictures, which is now which is now Warner Horizon in, in, in terms of primetime programming. But but I got hired to show run um, Are You Hot? The Search for America's Sexiest People. And that was another test. So when I, I passed that test, I was offered an overall deal at Warner Brothers to produce, to showrun shows for Mike that were not The Bachelor. I had sort of graduated, you know, to, you know, a bigger league as a, as a full-fledged showrunner and did a lot of shows for ABC. Um, at the time, we had a first-look deal with, with ABC. I think we had a second-look deal with CBS. I did a show at the time for the WB. And so when you um, say but, showrunner, are, what exactly are you talking about? So um, if one were to watch the credits on a reality show and actually a, a scripted television show, there, there may be many executive producers, but there's typically one showrunner. And that's really the person who I'd say is the day-to-day general in charge of getting that show done from casting to pre-production to execution in the field into editing. And the best way to explain it is as the showrunner, if the network's happy, you get the phone call. If the network's pissed, you get the phone call. <laughs> so, so, so you're really the guy in charge and, and leading the troops every day to accomplish what has to get done. And when you talk about first look deals, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of different deal structures in Hollywood, but a first look deal meant that at the time, Mike Fleiss's production company, anything that Mike um, came up with or created or anyone on his team would have to get pitched to ABC first. They had first rights to the show idea. And back then, Bachelor was the highest rated show on ABC. So Mike had a lot of sway and they would typically buy any, anything that came out of Mike's mouth, um, which doesn't happen much anymore, by the way. Um, <clears throat> it's very rare to go in, pitch, pitch a couple sentences, and then walk out and say, would you like it or not? But, but we were in a unique position, and I think at our maximum, we had seven network shows on the air. So that meant that ABC had the first rights to the, to the show, and, um, and typically they snatched it up. Uh, if they passed on the show, and I don't know the particulars of the deal, we, uh, Mike Fleiss probably had the right to shop it to another network, um, or there was some kind of holding period. But essentially a first-look deal is where a buyer has a relationship with the seller or a content producer, and they have first dibs at, at your vision and your ideas. And then so if, if the ABC bought it, then he would assign different showrunners like you to take over the show. Essentially, yeah. And so there was, at the time, um, there, there was a showrunner, uh, a very talented showrunner named Lisa Levinson, who was in charge of The Bachelor. And then there was me, who was typically assigned the non-Bachelor shows. And then there was a, another level of producers who you would sometimes get paired with. Very talented producers and producers have gone on to do, to do great things. But yes, so Mike would sell a show, you'd get assigned the show, or I would get assigned my show, and then is when the hard work began because when the, so, when the show was sold in the room, you know, it was really just 
it was a high concept pitch. It was, it was, you know, maybe a 15 minute meeting. Once it was bought and the deal was negotiated between the studio and the network, I would then have to basically what I call break the format and essentially (laughs) figure out how to do the show and not only do the show, but do it within the confines of the budget. And so, um, the budget's four walls and it, it, it is what it is. And I was always told what my budget was. And, and so I w- my job, once I was sort of given the reins, would, to, would go, we'd go back to the network and then we'd repitch the show in a much more substantive and granular way, which was here's how the show works and we walked them through the show. And then once they signed off on that is when you would start uh, hiring you know, department heads, usually casting first. Um, um, some producers and, and, and start and then start building your staff and, and, and off you go. You spent quite a while doing some um, pretty high level reality shows and now you've transitioned into a different format. How I did. did. So after, so, well, so I had, you know, a blessed career with Howard Ray, actually season three of the amazing race won the first primetime Emmy in the competition um, category. So I, I won the first Emmy for race. It's, I think it's since one nine, but I'm certainly proud to have won the first one. Um, then having, you know, a, a very productive experience at Warner brothers after I left Mike at Warner brothers after five years, I had an overall deal at CBS and I did a couple big shows for them. Um, I truthfully, I was, I was burnt. I mean, I, 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 it happens, you know, I had, I had been working, you know, I think at that point, you know, almost 20 years straight and, um, decided that I, I was going to try to do something different, but, but not take a turn that was so wildly entrepreneurial that it didn't rely upon my skill sets. So, what so my decision and going back to the kid who was working in the video store and back to the kid who couldn't get a job in the movie business, um, I decided that <laughs> I wanted to make movies, and and the way I did it is I kind of bought my way in and 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 I can give some context to that, but I was represented um, or still represented by Paradigm, um, the talent agency, and I had read an article um, that inspired me and moved me that I felt had the makings of being a movie. And I reached out to the agency and I said, I think this is a movie, but I'm not quite sure how this all works. And I'd like to be a a movie producer. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of like naively, you know, like asking that question, having been a reality producer and, and they knew I had a story and they knew I had a story that I was pursuing the life rights for. And they basically said, can you write a check? And I'm like, well, what, what do you mean can I write a check? Well, can you write a check to hire a legitimate produced WGA screenwriter? And I said, I think I can write a check. And they said, then you're a movie producer. <laughs> and literally that was, that was how it started. <laughs> and um, so I had <laughs> – so, so I had – I had met with some of their writers and, and ended up hiring a, an, an amazing writer named Ryan Jaffe who had, um, had sold a lot of projects and has had a, a movie produced and, and, 
had written um, some scripts that were you know notable around town, and and he set off to write this movie for me called Referee, which is based on um, one of the youngest referees in the NBA who fulfilled his dream at the age of 16. This kid decided that he wanted to be an, an NBA ref. There's only 60 spots, and he made it. So it's kind of an American dream. It's a little bit of a comedy as well, but it's, ba- it's based on a true story, and it's like a very inspiring story. It sounds a little bit um, like a Hoosiers kind of thing. It's that. It's definitely got like a Bend It Like Beckham. It's uh-huh. got a little bit of like Billy Elliot, you know, rarefied dream. Uh-huh. Um, and, and maybe dosing a little bit of a Rocky story too. It it's also um, has a, a cultural element. His, his family had emigrated, um, this particular referee, his, his family emigrated from uh, the Ukraine and they were homeless in Manhattan. And in, in that Russian culture, um, uh, your 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 parents want you to assimilate. They want you to become a doctor, lawyer, or an accountant. And th- th- this kid wanted to be an NBA ref, so he was surrounded by a bit of dream killers, you know. Right. right. And so, um, which I think touched me because I-, I know a lot of colleagues and friends that I speak to in the entertainment business. Our parents, which are from a different generation, like like don't understand. They don't. I don't even think my parents even still know what I do. You know, <laughs> at, at, after doing this for for twenty years. Right. But um, but but the story spoke to me, and um, from that experience, and not really knowing the the independent film world, um, Ryan, the screenwriter, approached me, and he had been thinking about transitioning into a producer. Um, you know, all sort of like the planets coming into alignment, me wanting to transition from being a reality showrunner to a, to a movie producer, Ryan being a screenwriter, wanting to transition into a movie producer. So we had many, many conversations about forming a production company and we did. So that was about a year and a half ago, How are that you conversation. F- and how are you finding it different from the reality world because it's vastly different it's equally exciting and equally horrifying it's 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 very very hard particularly in the independent world and the reason why it's called independent filmmaking is that the the traditional system the big studios even the agencies to a large extent they they don't look at the independent world um, as, as a real moneymaker for them. Although you can point to many independent films that have made a lot of money, it doesn't really fit into the system. Right. So you're sort of working outside the system and the, the hardest piece of it. And the reason why some movies get made and some movies don't is that not only are you financing and developing the material, you know, which is, you know, money out of your pocket, you're trying to raise the money for the budget. And it's very, very hard to raise money. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a risky investment for, for, for most. And it's needles and haystacks, you know, and we hustle every day. And we, we've had some success in, in, in raising portions of the money for some of our movies. We now have three movies, three movie projects that we're raising money for, but, there's also the element of packaging, which is chicken and the egg. So you're while you're trying to raise money, you're getting your script out to talent via casting director, and you're trying to attach talent 
which would therefore entice perhaps the investors. It's all, it's all a very um, sort of interesting dance. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, well, I um, think from what I've seen and, and the people I've worked with, basically, if you can get some talent attached and someone who has, you know, who, who people will go and see, that's really seems to be the key for every independent film to get yeah, financing. And the tr- and- and and the trick the trick is that the ones that <clears throat> the, the 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 talent that means something you know have a hundred projects in front of what you hope for is that someone falls in love with your script and a lot of celebrities or a lot of talent bounce between doing big Hollywood movies right right and bounce back to doing independent films because they both offer two things one, I mean one I think offers a big paycheck and God bless them and profile. And one offers, you know, sort of art and more creative freedom and not working under the system. So it's like, how do you catch, how do you catch that, that actor who's, you know, maybe coming off of the big movie and wants to do a small movie? You know, how do you catch him in your net? There's a lot of rejection, but you have to have a lot of fortitude and tenacity, you know, which we do. And, um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's a hustle. We hustle every day. We hustle every day. We think of, we think of ways to, you know, crack open potential um, financing. We think of of ways to get to talent. Um, maybe not necessarily through the normal through the normal channels. Yeah, you know, it's 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 has to be really out of the box. Right. That's when you become um, really creative. That's the most creative stories are people with scripts that are trying to get to talent because they've got all those gatekeepers that are specifically trying to keep you from doing that. <laughs> yeah, and and like I. You know, like, I mean, one side of me, you know, respects the system and I, and, and I understand the system. I was, I mean, I'm part of the system. I mean, I still have an agent for my reality business and, and we, you know, have agents who help us for the movies and, and we have an amazing casting director um, named Billy Hopkins, who's cast um, the butler for Lee Daniels. He's terrific and he's a huge fan of ours and, and, you know, people answer his phone call. But it's a very linear process. So you submit a script to a talent, you know, it, you have to give them a couple of weeks to read it. It's not sort of a wide net. So it's a very linear process. It's, it's, a, it's a slow process that I'm sort of not used to. You know, reality shows can get up and go fast. Right. The, the movie business is a, is a very linear business. So, um, you know, so I guess, the, I mean, the moral of my story, you know, for anyone who's listening is – you know, I decided, you know, to sort of click back into what I originally set out to do, you know, 20 years ago, which was to make movies. And I do try to be practical and, and know that um, movies take a long time. You know, if you read articles or, or blogs about independent filmmakers, you know, sometimes you have to go back to your old gig, you know what I mean? And right. then keep movie going. So it's been, it's been an amazing experience so far. Again, this, you know, the scary parts happen because, you know, I'm, I'm self-funding the company. So I'm, I'm writing a lot of checks, but you, you try, I mean, you, you read the stories that, um, that sort of give you a stomachache. Then, you know, there's also many stories where people have had success and there's been amazing independent films and it's a good time now because there's so many different revenue streams for films right um that you're not reliant upon just sending your film through the festivals and hoping that you know harvey weinstein writes you a check there's there's the other 
weight distribution channels and video on demand and digital and still DVD and it's, 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 like I said, it's, it's exciting and horrifying at the same time, for sure, for sure. It wasn't, it wasn't a big leap because frankly, many of the budgets of a single episode of some of the big giant reality shows I produced are, are more than the budgets of our independent movies. So when I talk to investors, I've been responsible for budgets, you know, 12 or 10 times more than the budget of these of these small movies. So like I said, we've had some we've had some success in in short short order with with investors. It's a hustle and and you have to be sort of fearless and not afraid to ask people for money for something that you believe in. That's the difference. I mean, right. the the projects that we have um some lean more towards passion projects and and one we're working on which is like an action thriller definitely um, has piqued the interest more of our agents <laughs> because it's way more commercial and it fits much more into the the formal the formal system if that makes sense. But uh, you know, it's certainly not for everybody. For me, it's something that I would probably regret if I didn't pursue it. Well, now, are you planning on remaining? The producer, and in this, it sounds like an executive producer role. Are you thinking about going into directing one of these? The title that I that I'm attached to all our projects as my partner as producer. It's funny in the in the movie business, the credit hierarchy is is a little different than in, in the TV business. The best way to explain it is the person that gets the Oscar, the Academy Award, is the producer, not the executive producer. The executive producers many times may be Someone who had who had um, written a big check for your movie, right. uh, maybe someone who helped you find money, could be an executive um, from a small studio if it's a studio movie or a big studio. The the, the role that that I'm playing and my partner are playing, we're we're playing the role of producers, um, again, which is which is a, a slightly different semantics in in reality. In reality, it's the executive producers or the showrunner. Are generally in charge, and in scripted television, same thing. There's a lot of executive producers and usually one showrunner. So, th- so, so that's my role. But then we're also running a company, so we ha- so we have other projects uh, in other buckets. We have some scripted television projects, and we have some reality projects that we're developing as well. And um, and all the while, I haven't sort of said to the town. You know, I'm never going to show on a reality show again um, because I think that that would be silly to throw away all those years of experience. So it's something that I have jumped back into uh, for short gigs, you know, because mm-hmm. um, I do like being hyper productive and it's nice to get a paycheck because yeah. because the, the movie making process is, you know, it's 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 a little slower than what I'm used to. So I'm sort of adjusting to it. Right. A whole different thing. So at this point, you're you're looking for the money and waiting on a, a lot of stuff to get in place before you can start on your features. And do you feel like that's where you ultimately want to end up then, is completely just going into features then? It would be amazing if I could do that. Um, it would be amazing if I can do that. I'm practical. I mean, there's classic stories. Um, I think it took uh, uh, Lee Daniels uh, at least five years to make to make the butler there's stories of movies that have taken 10 i think gravity for some reason i recall 10 years to the screen it takes a long time so since i didn't start my path off in the film business and 
you know, 20 years ago. I look for shortcuts, and, and I think the shortcuts are, 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 again, being independent and trying to raise the money and trying to attach talent and surrounding ourselves with amazing, you know, attorneys and, and our team. And yes, if one day, if, if all I was doing was making movies, that would be a dream come true. Right. Um, and that's, that's my goal. I'm practical, and this is just practical advice for, for anyone who's listening, is that my day job and my former career can finance this you know, other piece, which is going to take, take some time. Now, the thing that can happen, and this is the part that's so lovely about this business, is you could get a phone call one day that could just be a game changer, you know, right, right. a phone call from an investor that you've been talking to, and he's willing to write you the big check instead of aggregating smaller amounts of money, right. or you get a, f- a phone call back from uh, a talent that means something in terms of the system. And so that's, that's the exciting part. You know, I guess I think you have to be a little bit of a gambler. It's, you're um, playing the long game when you do You're playing features. the long game. <laughs> You're playing the long game. You're you're also playing. You're you're hoping the short game works. You're doing everything you can, and then I think just again, given my my background, and and having you know dedicated 20, 20 years of my life to a very specific skill set, um, as as much as I wake up every day and sort of put pressure on myself and put pressure on my partner that I wish things would happen faster. I can't change the system. But I can try to think of innovative ways to raise money or, uh, you know, legal ways, of course, um, you know, or, or ways to get at people or ways to, you know, maybe reach the producing partner of a talent as a way to get someone to read it so it's not clogged up, you know, in an agency system that's very busy. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't well, begrudge the fact that those guys are, are, you know, have a lot on their desks. You know? Yeah, it's funny that you say, I think it took five years to get the, the butler on the screen. Well, I'll bet you that it didn't take long once he got Oprah involved. So that the years are kind of the waiting game, the w- doing all the groundwork to get that one moment with whoever it is. Exactly. It's going to give you the green exactly. light. And yeah. then what do you hope for? And this is another reason why, and this happens, I think, in... It happens in reality television, it happens in scripted television, and it happens in, in independent movies. You just need, you need one, let's say, hit, one thing to work right. to just to then leverage that to do the next one and the next one. You know what I mean? Right. And so that's what you know, we're hoping for is let's make – let's, you know, we, we, we spread our chips across the table, which means we have multiple projects – Let's let's make one, and and you know let's do it well, and and let's hope we can you know get our investors' money back, and maybe and then we can make another one. You know Mike Fleiss, who brilliantly was able to leverage the success of The Bachelor into many other sales, as well as anyone today on scripted television, you know who has a hit show, can leverage that into a giant you know eight figure overall deal so it's 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 you know you're you're just you're you're hoping for that one thing to sort of break through and and until you get there it is kind of you against the world you know what i mean right. um until you sort of prove yourself so so that's um that's the interesting yeah. part is you've definitely proven yourself in reality even winning emmys but once you move into the realm it becomes another proving game and what's interesting in hollywood is that you sort of are kind of never done with that 
it's whatever you most recently did. So, I mean, and that story's been told a million Absolutely. times, I, but it's so I true. Have, <laughs> I have, had, I've had the pleasure and it's a funny story. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> I have had the pleasure of, of meeting with some very, very established film producers. Like these are big guys who also have reality ideas and they'll sit there and they'll say to me, my movies have made hundreds of millions of dollars in the box office, but I can't get network approved <laughs> to sell my reality show. Right. So I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, you're right. It's like you're known for a certain thing, right? And God bless you. And I think a lot of, I'm seeing it now. I, I mean, I see it all the time. I take, I get the phone calls. There's a lot of movie companies. I mean, the Weinsteins are a good example who are, you know, are, are, are legitimately in the reality TV business. It's a great, you know, if you if you can sell shows and get revenue streams, it's a great business. Right. There's companies. I think the, uh, the the company Asylum last week sold for a hundred million dollars, and they have some hits on the air. You know, it's a great business, but but it's it's true. You 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 have to you have to. I mean, I haven't gotten a lot of pushback in in terms of like, hey Scott, like you're out of your mind. I just don't come with a pedigree of a proven track record in filmmaking. I just have to convince people that that I talk the same talk really at the end of the day. So for anyone who's listening, no one gives you a handbook when you graduate from film school or, or, or your television program. You have to hustle from day one. I'm still, listen, I'm 47 and I'm still hustling. I may be hustling harder now than I ever have been. <laughs> um, there's, there's, there, there, there's no right path, but I, you know, I've seen a lot of people do great. I've seen a lot of people sort of give up um, and, and, and not giving up for any bad reason. It's just, you know, it's a commitment and it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's supply and demand. There's a lot of people fighting for that one job. There's been many times where I've decided to, th- or I've thought that I would throw in the, throw in the white flag and surrender, but I haven't. And so I would, I would just scream loud, loud as I can. If you, if you can make it work, just figure out how to make it work. Everyone has their, has their own story. I, I'd say, you know, tenacity and, and not giving up. Are, are certainly part of it. And if that's your passion, you know, go for it. And, and by the way, stick it out for as long as you can. Who knows? I don't, you know, I, I don't know how long I could continue to do this. I, you know, it's, it's, it's a grueling business. Like, you, you know, I'm not shy about saying that it's full of fatigue and, and long hours. Um, but if you love it, you know, it, it, it I think it makes sense in the end. Yeah. It's definitely only for those with true, true passion because that that you can't manufacture and i think people will see that if you if you keep at it with these stories i think that's what ends up getting you down the road so. yeah absolutely absolutely so so you know as as passionate as i feel about making these movies is as passionate as i want it to be the best pa possible and be recognized and then be the best you know, associate producer possible, you know, just earn your place, you know, be the best at the video store. You know what I mean? Right. Be the best temp assistant answering phone calls for an executive, you know, for those three days. It just, whatever that job is, crappy or otherwise, just do, do your best at it. You will get recognized. Someone will believe in you or multiple people will believe in you. And, and just, you know, have that tenacity to not give up. There's a thousand a thousand reasons that this business spits out at you every day to give up. And it's great if you can hang in there. Eventually, it'll be a matter of time where there's good news. <laughs> well, I can't think of a better way to end our time. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm ready to see those films. Let us know when they come out. 
I absolutely will. I'll, I'll keep you posted, Ingrid, and thank you for your time. All right. If you have questions for Scott or about producing, go to chocolife.com. <laughs>